If you remember in the Old Testament, we saw the Israelites after wandering in the desert for wilderness for 40 years, they came to uh, encamp there on the eastern side of the Jordan River, all set and ready and posturing and poised to enter the promised land, the land of their destiny, the promised land that God himself said would be for his people. Now the tribes, as they were sitting waiting and getting uh, positioned to go across, and miraculously, as we know, God parts the waters to actually cross the Jordan River, that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half of the tribe of Manasseh, however, chose to remain on the east side of the Jordan. They asked, we don't want to go on the other side into the promised land. We want to stay right here because we see that the land is just beautiful. It's just, it's its ideal place to raise cattle and, and have plenty of room and space for us to have for our tribes. Moses consults with God and, and Moses says at the time, gives them the permissive, will the permission to do so that the stipulations though if you are going to do that fine but you still have to come over with your warriors to the west side of the Jordan River and to join the nine nine and a half tribes in warfare to push the enemy out and to claim the promised land as God has said so the two and a half Tribes agreed and fought for seven years on the west side of the Jordan River until the promised land was conquered. We saw that over the last few weeks. Now we will see that the enemy comes in and never gives up. When they've done the work of God, usually the enemy is right there through the work of God, but also after you think it's done, we're done. This is great. We can live and we can breathe now. Let's go back and just rest. And no, that's not always the case. Many times the enemy will come in. And in this case, we will see that the enemy is at work. We will see that the eastern tribes, those two and a half tribes, are given permission to now. They're able to go back to their own inheritance that was permissively given to them on the east side. That means they have to cross back over the Jordan to their families after their successful mission. Here's where we pick back up here in Joshua 22, as we see in verse 1 through 4, Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half a tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but you have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you on the other side of the Jordan. Now, when you take a look at that, it's like you, there's probably a lot of celebration here after seven years of being away from your wives, your families, and, not, and being in war for seven years. You finally get to come home. You finally get to go and settle in your tent and work the land and take care of the land and take care of your families and see your kids have grown for seven years and, and they've come, become adults and all the things you think of if you've ever been to war. 
And here they're helping the tribes over on the west. Now they finally get to go over to the east after they've conquered all those enemies and completely been obedient and helpful to Joshua as a leader and to all of their brethren there on the western side. They had gone out and fought on behalf of their brethren. Even though they already had their own inheritance, they were willing, and that was the agreement, to come over and help them, as God had commanded them to do. And they kept their word to God. They kept their word to Moses. They kept their word to Joshua. And now Joshua is going to keep his word. And here we find now the land was conquered and fully distributed out to the tribes. And they now could go back and to their families. Joshua, we see in these verses, dismissed the soldiers, you're dismissed, with honor. You get to go home. Now remember, in the service of the Lord is as far above our devotion to any leader. Serving the Lord is above any leader that you would serve. Serving the Lord is above a cause that you would be asked to do. Serving the Lord is above any nation who calls you to go do something. It's your devotion to the Lord is number one of why we do what we do so faithfully. And that's what they did. It brings us to, back to Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That is why we serve God. We do not serve a leader. We don't serve an organization. We don't serve people. We serve God and do what he's called us to do, which is to serve other people, to do a mission, to do something for God. Sometimes it involves maybe one other person. It involves and impacts hundreds, if not thousands. Now it continues here in verses 5 and 6 where Josh is going to give them this exhortation. But notice how many things he highlights here in this exhortation. There are six of them uh, to to, to note here as we look at verses 5 and 6. It says, But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So we see to be careful, to take heed, to heed, be very careful, make sure you focus on to do the commandments. He tells them to take care of the heat of the word of God. The word of God says you will do this. Don't sway from that. Probably here is mostly in the sense of digitally hearing it and knowing it. You must hear God's word to know God's word and to do God's word. But heed his commandments of what he's saying to you. And then to love the Lord your God. So he's telling them to love the Lord in this process as God commands them and sends them to do what he's going to do, to love God. And that's a matter of heart. But it can still be commanded. We're to love God. It's a commandment. 
It's not an option for you and I. It wasn't an option for them. Because if your heart's not right, it doesn't matter to what God tells you. You're not going to follow through with it. You're not going to be faithful. You're not going to do what God's doing and then do it with the right heart. Love is very important. And to walk in all his ways. Don't walk in just some of his ways. (laughs) You're to know his ways and walk in all of those ways. To keep his commandments. It tells them to obey God with all they have. To hold fast to him. Personally, you have to hold fast to it. That means you have to, you have to be diligent. You're going to, have to, you're going to have to be tenacity here. You're going to have some characteristics of, you know, as, a, as, a, as a child of God. You're going to have to have some really hold fast to him and not be swayed. Because if you get your eyes on yourself or other people or even a leader or a nation or any organization or anything, you're going to start having problems because you're not holding fast to him. But then you're going to serve him. We must serve him with all their hearts and soul. It's not negotiable. If you want to boil this down into this very short message, what God called them to do and calls us to do, obedience, love, fellowship, and service. Obedience, love, fellowship, and service. Obey God. Love God. Love others. Serve others. That's what God's called us to do. But if you notice the order, the first is to hear God. Take care of hearing God. That's the first thing. You must hear and listen and be obedient. Then we give him our love. We're to love him. It's in that order. And as we hear God and we love God and we're obedient and walk with God, If you mix any of those things up in priorities in in that order, then you have problems. Because if you mix that order up and you drift into heresy when you're just loving without hearing. Love, 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 love the people, love the people. But you don't hear and be (laughs) what God's word says. You almost ignore God's word because it's all just about just showing love. Or the opposite is, is all legalism. That's obeying and obeying, 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 obeying God's word to the law, but there's no love. Yes, I know you know the word, but where's the love? You just become legalism, legalistic in your life. And you have to be very careful of that. That's why, and that order is so important. Yes, hear from God, love God, love the people, be obedient to that. But here we see that Joshua blessed them and sent them away. Joshua would not send them away just haphazardly. Thanks for your service. And uh, th- now take you and your, uh, your, all your goods and uh, head back over the East Coast. No, he didn't say that. He's going to bless them. Why? Because he has led them. His heart is attached to these people. He's, he's been leading them through the, all the, the seven years of war and prior to that. He wanted to bless them. As a leader, you want to bless the people. 
Yes, your military obligation is fulfilled. You're done with your military obligation. But Joshua reminded them of their abiding spiritual commitments with their, which with their conditions with God's continues after this. You served, you faithfully served, you completed the mission that God asked you to do, but that doesn't change your spiritual condition of continuing to serve God. Perhaps the blessing he poured out that we saw in Numbers 6, verses 23 and through 27, as speaks to, spoke, speaking to Aaron and his son saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Can you hear him saying that, that prayer? Perhaps Joshua was like a dad who is sending his son off no longer under the close watchful eye of the father, but now he's going into the world. He's an adult. He's moving on. He was perhaps concerned that with the son leaving and separation, like Joshua, he's perhaps concerned of their separation from the rest of the tribe, from his leadership and going on to the other side of the Jordan River, that, that the he, they're not going to be with the rest of the nine and a half tribes. The rest of the nation of Israel. And maybe they would cause them to drift away from the things of God. Because they're at a distance. Drift away from worshiping the Lord. To and they would embrace and get involved with the idolatry of the world because they're no longer close just like a father with a son going into the world. In verse 7 through 9, we see their departure. Now to half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession of Bashan, but to the other half of it, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tents, with much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much, uh, very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your, of your enemies with your brethren. So the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh returned, departed from the children of Israel to Sh after, at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, G Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So he's encouraging him. You accumulated a lot of wealth here with all the enemies. You were able to get all the spoils. Now, when you get back on the east side, just make sure you share that with your brethren on the other side. Who would these brethren be? Well, remember, not all the men came. Some of the kids in seven years grew up. Some had to be there to run to protect the women and the children. Some men had to stay behind, the older generation maybe. And they had to watch and, and work the land and make sure that that's a long time. Just because they didn't go to war does not mean they don't get the benefits from the people winning the, the war. 
And so he was encouraging you, make sure you're sharing with the possessions as you return to the people who were left behind, taking care of the families on the other side. These were true veterans of the, of the army of Israel, yes. But imagine what all the emotional departure from their brothers on the west side, now going in the east side, and the relationships that are now separating, even the tribe of Manasseh being separated and going back over. All the emotions that must have been wrapped up in all that. If you've ever been to war and you've been sitting there going and being shot at and near-death experiences, watching death around you, and you come back from the war, and then all of a sudden you're dropped off, you have a celebration of you come back, and families come rushing in, and we've been to so many of them, and they come rushing and see, haven't seen their loved one, and maybe sometimes six months or eight months or a year, year and a half or longer, and it's so much emotion there. And it's almost like it's just like you're dropped. <laughs> it's like these guys you've been living with, Side by side for so long, and it's all of a sudden, boom. And all the emotions that are attached with it. These, what do you think these men are the same thing? But look what happens. There's an incident that takes place here. Verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great and impressive altar. You know, it's interesting. Before crossing the Jordan here, these soldiers of the two and a half tribes built this great, impressive altar near the Jordan River. Excited to go home, they're approaching, their minds are probably flooded with memories and remembering the miraculous crossing seven years prior at that point. Having remembered the remarkable victory of Jericho and all the triumphs, the highs and the lows, all the spoilage they're taking back to their families, they haven't seen them in seven years. Dealing with a sense of separation and isolation that they have to deal with now because they're leaving their comrades behind and going to a whole other side, outside the, on the other side of the river. Now again, you think of a Jordan River as this little tiny little river running down through. But at the time, they, they see it between two mountain ranges. It could have been as wide as somewhere around 10 to 12 miles wide in its days. So it wasn't something light. It wasn't small. It wasn't like you're sitting on one side and say, I bet you I could throw a rope across and swing across and see you on the other side of the Jordan. So whatever they built on that side had to be so massive and so great so that on the east side they could see the altar. Why did they build the altar? An altar is significant because not only in its size, but the meaning of an altar. Remember, for everyone, they understood the altar was for sacrifice. You built an altar for sacrifice. Both for the Israelites and pagans, they built altars and used it for sacrifice. But their decision to build an altar actually resulted almost in a civil war. Because they did something they should not have done. And that's how the enemy divides. 
That's how the enemy sought to divide them from their brothers. And that's how Satan works. Satan's strategy is still the same today as it was then. Divide and conquer. His goal is always to get believers to separate and divide. To distance between them. To analyze and overanalyze everything. Critical spirited is what kicks into that, off of that analysis or analyzing kind of mindset. And it's in this passage we see four ways that the nine and a half tribes fell prey to the destructive division that Satan set up. And this is the lessons learned for us tonight. We see here in verses 11 and 12 that very first lesson. The very first mistake that the nine and a half tribes did when they saw and heard that the two and a half tribes built this altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. That's the west side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh, which is about 20 miles northwest from them, to go to war against them. So the very first steps toward division was taken when the nine and a half tribes acted on heresy. They did not see the altar they built because they thought they were being heresy or going against the word of God. And it's that hearsay moment that caused them to react. Hearsay. There's heresy going on. There is something going on. They're going against God. They're going against us. This is really bad. And it's all hearsay. They heard about it, but did they have the facts and did they actually see it? No, they only did it based on hearsay. And that is how Satan starts the ball rolling to cause division. I know that's what he said. I know that's what they meant. I know, but did you see the facts? Did you talk with them? Did you actually go see them? Or did, why are you overreacting when you haven't even seen or talked or nothing with these people? Why are you dividing over this brother, over that, of what you hear say? But how many times that happens? When the news came to the rest of Israel, there was no discussion. There was just simple reaction, and it was all negative. Why did they go to the negative? Because they thought it was heresy. They thought they were going against God. They knew the consequences of going against God. Wouldn't they know they know these two and a half tribes really well being in war together for, for seven years? You would think, no way, they wouldn't do that. Why would they do They wouldn't do that. No, until we get the facts, we're not, I'm not going to react to this thing. Let's go, get this. Let's go find out why they built it, what happened, if it's true. Let's see it ourselves. No, they didn't. They just simply reacted. They immediately gathered to make war against their own brothers who built this altar. 
Joshua didn't have to call up the people. Get your, your sorry guys, you were settled in. Get into the closet and pull out your, your duffel bag and your war, your, all your uniforms and all the stuff. Get a, it's, we're having a bagpacking party again. Get your spear, get your shield. Here we go. We're going back to war again, but this time against our brothers. No, Joshua didn't have to do that. Everyone, it was spread like wildfire. And all nine and a half tribes, they're all in unity, say, we're going to rise up and go to war with our brethren. Why did they do this? Because they feared that the altar, this altar that they heard that was built, was a sign of an uh, allegiance or somehow they have already somehow went and maybe joined up with pagan gods of the region? Do they think that they could just go build another altar for God that they serve and have their own sacrifices and have their own little tabernacle and all this stuff? That's, that's what they think they can do? I mean, on one side, the fact that they were unity and say, this is heresy, this is terrible, this, is, this cannot happen, we're willing to fight for God because that, that two and a half tribes should never have, have uh, done this. Was there bitterness and resentment that the two and a half tribes stayed on the east side and didn't come across to the west side like they were supposed to? Was there bitterness? And that's why it was so triggering to once an opportunity and an enemy just used that to use it against the tribes to go to war because their bitterness had taken root over the seven years? Possibly. All I know is the soldiers answered in their minds by building this huge, this huge altar that could be seen at great distance would witness their right to the original altar at the tabernacle is what they're saying. They're reacting such at an altar as the Israelites on the western sides of the Jordan River. There's like, wait, what is going on here? What's the purpose of this? But they didn't ask those questions. Why didn't they just build a monument in memory of what they did? Why did they build an altar instead? And the reason is, is the altar is what is the true basis or foundation of unity. The altar is the basis, the foundation of the unity of their worship centered in the sacrifices at the altar. But all this backfired. The symbol of unity that the two and a half tribes will build an altar will show that we're, we have this, this focus that we're not going to lose the, the, the attention on worshiping and is where we worship the same God and, and we just wanted this reminder, a symbol of us to never forget. But instead of a symbol of unity, it was misconstrued and it became a symbol of apostasy. So what happened? We'll see verses 13 through 15. It says, Then the children of Israel sent 
Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest to the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half of, Tri- of Manasseh into the land of Gilead. And with him, ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and the half a tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying, Pause there. So they had crossed, they built the altar, they crossed over, they're on the east side. So these, <clears throat> this, this entourage of led by Phineas and, and, and having representation from the tribes, all the, with ten rulers, all had to cross over to come over and to meet, almost like a, like a negotiation party before we come to go to war, let's, let's, now ask some questions. So the first mistake was they went on hearsay. The second mistake, these nine and a half tribes, was that they got worked up before they checked the situation out. They got ready for battle before they even established the facts. Remind you of Proverbs 18.13. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. So this group, led by Phineas. Why Phineas? Because he had the authority. He was the high priest over the whole nation at the time. To include the two and a half tribes that are on the east side. That, there was only one tabernacle, one worship place. He was the one high priest. He was the one that had the authority to go over and ch- ask them what is going on here. Not only did he have the authority, but he also had the heart of a very wise shepherd to deal with this properly. Thank you. God. He wanted to correct the erring of that two and a half nations. To protect the nation as a whole. To drive out the dangerous precedents that they had set by building an altar. An additional altar that looks just like the one that is in Shiloh. The one and only one that should be. And they came to speak with them. Israel reacted according to God's character in this area because of the leading of the Phineas. Their assembling of for war demonstrated God's holiness, yes, because it was apostasy, it was heresy, it was not good. But their personal confrontation demonstrated God's love because God's love overseeded their anger, even though they believed it was righteous anger. They made a mistake going by hearsay. They made a mistake overreacting. They should have stayed calm and get the facts and send someone who is a wise leader and negotiator to come with authority and has a wise shepherd with a heart to find what is the root of why they did what they did and not just chop their head off and ask questions later. Verse 16 through 18, we see the third mistake. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? 
Question mark. So they're really not convinced. They're pretty set in their minds. They believe in their minds. They know exactly why they built that altar. To have their own sacrifice, their own worship outside of what God told them they could do. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us? Now they're going to bring in an example of when you go against God and doesn't do what God's called, you, people die. So he brings in the example of the iniquity, the sin of Peor, that not enough for us from which we are not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from the following the Lord. Question mark. And it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So he sits there and he goes, wait a minute, let me remind you here. There's consequences when you start thinking you can go worship however you want to worship outside of the will of God. Doing your own thing and figure out I can worship God any way I want to. That's the third mistake the nine and a half tribes make here because they made it using the Lord's name loosely. Yes, that you can happen even as spirit-filled believers today as well. We hear something, we react and flares up this indignation of flares and anger over a situation and even though you don't have the facts. And then we use the name of the Lord liberally with saying, the Lord showed me this, or the Lord wants you to know that, or I, I'm just doing what the Lord showed me. Always trying to bring the Lord in very loosely when, did you really hear from the Lord? Are you sure that was from the Lord? We must be very careful to bring God's name into something to justify your emotions and stirring up and all these other things and justifications why you're losing it. It just might be your own opinion. You might be only leaning on your own understanding. And clearly that's what they were doing. But they called it out. This is treachery to those two and a half tribes. This is treachery. We're, we're at odds. We're about to go to war because you're doing treachery. And you're putting us in a situation where the whole nation is going to be brought down like Peor because of the sin of of a few. God reminded me clearly sacrifices and worship was to be completed only at God's tabernacle in Shiloh. Nowhere else. Leviticus 17 8 and 9 clearly says God clearly commanded there was will be one place of sacrifice and burnt offerings for Israel. And that was not at the edge of a Jordan River uh, in, as a, a duplicate or as a, a copy of what was going on in Shiloh. Now we understand from this that we cannot worship God any way we please. Or justify a manner of worship just because we like it. Our worship must always be one priority and that is pleasing of, to God. And it must be the fact that we worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Outside of pleasing God and it's not in the spirit and truth, then you're not worshiping rightly. You're, you're, you don't fool yourself. 
this iniquity of Peor. Didn't that, wasn't that enough for you to get your attention, to, as he says, to the two and a half tribes? Do you remember Israel's men who had sex with the Moabite women? Gave themselves over to the worship of the Moabite gods and judgment, and God sent the plague that wiped out and killed 24,000 people? Until who stepped in to intercede for the God's people? Who was it? Who stepped in and stopped the plague from making a dramatic attempt because he stood for righteousness and he interceded and went against this gross sin? Phineas. Phineas was the leader at the time that went in to, to save the God's people because God was going to wipe these people out. Phineas also knew that the sin of these tribes would reflect on the whole nation. It wasn't going to affect just the two and a half tribes. It would affect the whole nation. He knew that no one really sins all by yourself. And that is true in our lessons today. Sin never affects just you. It affects everyone around you. Always affects others around you. You may ignore it. You may deny it. But the reality is it's true. Now we see another mistake. Verses 19 and 20. Nevertheless, if the land of your possessions is unclean. Now here's the olive branch. Here's the gesture here. If your possession on the east side of the Jordan is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord on the promised land on the western side where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Atkin, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass and a, a, a cursed thing, and wrath fell on the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish along, alone in his iniquity? So he gave him a second example. Are you guys not getting a clue here? Because what you're doing is very dangerous. A huge consequence. But here the nine and a half tribes has a fourth mistake. They went on here say, they overreacted, went to the extreme, they use the Lord's loose names loosely to justify their emotions and why they're reacting the way they're reacting. And now we see that they bore false witness in accusing their brothers for rebelling against God. They just drew the conclusion. Bearing false witness can mean giving the right information but with the wrong implication. Jesus understood this fairly clear. If you remember with Jesus, when he was being tried, he had a false witness against him. Do you remember that? They're calling him out saying, he said he's going to destroy the temple and in three days he would raise it up. See that in Matthew 26. Jesus did say that. <laughs> but he wasn't saying the temple itself. He was talking about the, his body. The, his body was the one that was going to, to be uh, 
down for three days and then rise up. We see that in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. He was talking about his own body, not the actual temple. But they used his words in, in wrong implications as a bearing false witness against him to use that as to throw him into, the, into this trial and then finally crucifixion. But notice here, Phineas, again, a heart of a shepherd. If you are really missing the moment here with the altar and worshiping and sacrifices, then don't build an altar. Pack up your tribes. Get those two and a half tribes over into the promised land. And we'll get you intertwined within the land and come to the altar that is in Shiloh. Don't go against God. Don't do it your own way. Don't make up your own thing. Because that's going to bring judgment upon you and the rest of the nation of Israel. You'll be rebelling against the Lord. You're rebelling against us, he says, by building this altar. You choosing to build this altar and doing your own thing is, has a great cost to all of us. But he said... I rather you take your possessions and come back over to where we are on the west side. See, I, I find interesting lessons when I think and ponder on this because too many of us lack this willingness that Phineas is showing. We tell people to stop sinning, but are not willing to help them if it costs us something to help them to do it. You need to stop sinning. But they need something to help them to transition and to move or to, to have a place to say. Or you need money to be able to say, I'm not going to give any of that. I'm not going to give you money or anything that's going to cost me. I'm just going to point out your sin. Will you help me and sit down help me? No, I can't spend any time with you to help you and sit down and go through and take your texts and your phone calls and say, well, you know, I don't have any time to do that. But you've got to stop sitting. My brothers and sisters, if someone is there and you're going to call someone out on something, you better be willing to spend some time and money, something that's going to cost you, to help them. But don't think I'm saying all the problem and issues and mistakes was on the nine and a half tribes, because really I see the two and a half tribes really bear a lot of this weight here. Because... Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, the half a tribe, was responsible for the division that nearly led to a civil war. Why? Because they're on the wrong side of the river. God's perfect will was for the entire nation to go into the promised land and dwell together. They chose, I don't want God's perfect will for my life. I just want his permissive will. I'm going to two and a half tribes stayed on the wrong side. That is why the enemy had a foothold to come in because they weren't willing to do God's perfect will. But no, says the two and a half tribes. We have business, family, obligations. Look at this land. It's how beautiful. It's going to be perfect for us. We have more than we want. You guys go over there. We're going to have as much as we want. We get to do whatever we want. Oh, we're going to do however we're going to live. We don't have that. They're really only thinking of themselves and not God's will. 
The east side of the Jordan was a place of carnality. Carnality is just another name for fleshly. And it's interesting in seeing rather than the unseen, or let me rephrase that, instead of choosing to want to be, to see, that's what your focus is. I need to see it. I need to touch it. I need to, I need to live. I, I see this land. I need to see it. They chose carnality, fleshly. I lead by sight and not by faith. The unseen. That was their problem. They choose the material. I can touch it. I can feel it. I know what I'm going to get. Instead of spiritual. I'm just going to trust what God is going to provide. I can get it now. I need to see results now. Temporal. Versus having an eternal perspective. This is what is, all this is kind of accumulating within division among the nation. And division in regards to, we're going to civil war. But we see here, then the, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half a tribe, tribe of Manasseh answered. And now they're responding back to Phineas and, and those, those leaders and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods that he knows and, and let Israel itself know if it is in rebellion or if it's in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. Take our lives then. If we're doing something against God, take our lives. If we have built our, ourselves an altar to turn from, the, from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. Let him hold us accountable. That's the first thing that comes out of the, man, the, the, the two and a half tribes leader's response. Notice here, if you haven't caught this, the tongue twister there. The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows. When you look at the original language here, they first appeal to God. And they feel appeal to God using all, obviously, like swore twice by his God's three names. What are those three names when you look that up? El, El, Elohim, and Yahweh. All three of those names are represented just in those names that they're calling out. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. Let Him hold us accountable. Let him bring judgment and bring down and, and do not save us. Let him take our lives if that's what's happening. If we built that altar with the wrong heart, with the wrong purpose and reason. We didn't, we're not going against God. We're not going to rebel against God. So instead of re going against them and say, wait a minute, how dare you come across on the east side and you're going to challenge, tell us we're going to go to civil war, you're going to take us out? We're going to take your lives out right now. You're never going to make it back on the other side. We're going to take you out. No, they didn't react like that at all. They literally said, let God deal with us. And we did it wrong.
it's a, it's a kind of a nice reminder. When we are misunderstood, our first refuge is God. If someone th- says that they misunderstand you, the place you run for refuge is not to respond in like character, in anger, or passive aggressive, or any, you just your refuge is, refuge is in God. He knows our heart, and we must be satisfied by being right with God, even if it means we are wrong in the eyes of some of the others. Just make sure you don't fool yourself and you think you're right with God just because you stated. it. Because if you use the God card, then what can people say? God showed me this. Oh, okay, then... I, Everything else is pointing to the fact that you're, it's not of God, but, you know, okay, you, you use a God card. So don't go that far. People do that all the time. But they at least respond in saying, we'll be held accountable. God will, God will take will, to his account. We won't live through this if we're being rebellious and have treachery. Verse 24. But in fact, we have done it for fear. Oh, why did you do it? For fear. Why did you do it? Fear is not of the Lord. Why did you do it out of fear? For a reason, saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? Do you notice that? In time to come, your descendants, the ones on the west, may speak to our descendants, our children on the east, and say, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? You're not part of us. That's what they were fearful of. For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. You children of Reuben and the children of Gad... You have no part in the Lord. You notice the half a tribe of Manasseh is not noted here. Why? Because the other half is still connected with them on the other side. But the full tribes of Reuben and Chad, they didn't have any remnants on the west side. Everything was on their east side. You have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service, oh, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that our descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. It's coming out. A little more clarity here. Verse 28. Therefore, this is why he said that it may, will be when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come that we may say here is the replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices but it is a witness between you and us okay probably bringing clarity here it's, it's just a replica we 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 worship the same god we just want to let you know over there that we have an altar that reminds us of where we're to be verse 29 far be it 
from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, for the sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. They recognized they had tremendous distance between the east side and to where God's tabernacle is. That center of worship for Israel. So they built an altar as a memorial to to link the two segments of the nations to remind them for generations to come, we came from you. But they built it so big and impressive it appears. They wanted to stand and continue to stand as a memorial for the future generations that they worship the same God. Now, it's interesting, this replica of the altar agreed with the concerns on the western side tribes. And they explained to these these representatives from the western tribes what their rationale is, but it was based on fear. What they should have stopped and said, both of them, especially... Phineas should have looked right at him and said, did the Lord tell you, literally tell you by his word to build this altar? That would have solved it. Because they didn't didn't say that the Lord told them to build it. They took it upon themselves out of fear to do something that they weren't supposed to do. That's a warning for us. Out of fear, we make reactions, make decisions. But did the Lord tell you to do it? Or are you just reacting out of fear? They had to understand that building that altar was very unnecessary. Because God never told them to build the altar. God had ordained in the law In Exodus 23, 17, that all Israel males were to appear at the sanctuary three times a year. Just because you're on the east side of the tabernacle does not negate the fact that you're coming across three times a year to worship together in unity with the rest of the nation of Israel as God had designed. And designed to keep that unity of all the tribes, both spiritually and politically and materially. Militarily, they were to keep the unity because they all worshiped the same God and were all led by the same God. And because they built this altar, they set a dangerous precedent. A long-range unifying factor for the nation was her worship of Jehovah together in one place that God decided And they are starting to branch off so subtly out of fear. I think this will be okay to do. Because they were going on their feelings. Out of fear. And when that central sanctuary was abandoned. As the true place of worship. Then that is when it happens is when tribes will start developing an independent sanctuary, causing alienations among themselves, among the tribes, weakening the nation spiritually and militarily. And we will see this played out 
exactly the fear of all this or why it should not have happened. This gets all played out during the period of Judges when we study Judges. And it's the truth is still today. A nation will divide when one is spiritually and following God's word and one's carnality and going off into pagan world. Divide and conquer and a nation will fall. Even within the, in the church, when you have cardinal Christians in the church saying, I can worship just as well out on the river or on the, on the lake or in the woods or on the golf course, or, and I can be just like being in church. It's the same thing. No big deal. Well, you don't forget the word of God. Hebrews 10, 25 says it very clearly. Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Making a decision never to come to church and be around brothers and sisters is not a good choice. It's a very dangerous choice because you're going against the word of God. Because you've decided you can just create your own little worship place, your own little mountaintop. Verse 30. Now when Phinehas, the priests of the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the division of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. Based on your words coming out of your mouth, he believed them that they had no treachery, no rebellion, no nothing, no wrong heart, made a wrong decision to build the altar, but they didn't do it with the wrong heart for a wrong purpose, except out of fear. That's bad enough. But Phineas was pleased with the explanation. So that stopped the civil war. They reconciled before war. They didn't have the war and then try to reconcile. You don't want your wrath to go down in the situation before you go to sleep. Deal with it before. Don't go to war and then, then figure you out you'll reconcile some, some day, some week, some month, some year later. It's too late then. They already had war. And there's going to be war from war after war. And you're going to have all kinds of divisions and problems. But Phineas could see that the Lord was among us. God was moving and gave him this peace. That they were not going to cause a problem among the nation. Psalm 133.1 Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We see verses 32 through 34. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the rulers, returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. They had to come back and calm everyone down. <laughs> calm everyone down back there in those nine and a half tribes because they were ready to go to war. They just were waiting for the leaders to give them the, the go-ahead. And so the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel was blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dealt, dwelt. Again, notice, didn't mention the half the tribe of Manasseh right there in verse 33. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad 
Where's Manasseh here? Called the altar witness. Do you can see where, who, almost like I read that, I'm like, oh, these are the two tribes that was driving this thing. The one that built the altar, it was really what, to me, is the children of Reuben and God, because they had no remnants of their tribe on the west side, like Manasseh. And they called the altar. They, they, those two tribes called the altar a name, witness. For it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So everyone's glad. Everyone's happy. Everyone enjoys and is enjoying the blessings of having peace among the people of God. Of God. There's reconciliation uh, before the war. And, and the Civil War would have just been the icing of the enemy to try to divide the nation after all the success that God brought them through. And they had this witness. For both sides, east and west sides, to understand that they serve one, the Lord, and he is God. Remember, who does Jesus say our witness is? Jesus says our witness is not some man-made altar or some church building. It, our witness is our unity as the body of Christ is love. The world will know we're believers not by our bumper stickers, not by the fact that we're carrying Bibles, even though those are not bad things. They will know that you are my disciples if you love for one another, John 13, 35. It's by the love that we have. The love for God, the love between us, not division, not disunity, not anger, not bitterness, not any of that, but unity. Worshiping together, serving together, Giving to one another in, in times that God leads. Helping others. Loving our enemies. But we do it in spirit and truth. There's a foundation of God's commandment, God's truth. That is our foundation. The, the savior of the world that we, that we surrender our life to. The word of God. And out of that relationship will bear fruit of love. That's how you know that you're a disciple of Jesus. And there's unity among the brethren. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for things that you have for us this evening through your word. And may it speak to our hearts in so many ways. As your spirit moves and orchestrates and shows and reveals and uh, convicts, but also encourages and mends. And may your love pour through us because of that relationship we want so close to you, Lord. If there's anything in our lives that hinders us, any altars that we've built that are for other gods and for other purposes and everything, Lord, let that just be speak to our hearts and to get rid of them. There's only one true God that we worship. That we would have hearts to desire to dwell and and, and worship together in unity as brothers and sisters, serving you and loving you. 
not thinking we can just just do do our own thing and, and wherever we want to do it, wherever, however we want to do it. And we want your perfect will, Lord, not just your permissive will, and certainly not rebellious against your will. Go before us, Lord. We pray. Bless Calvary Chapel, North Country, in Jesus' name. Amen.